Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivigant companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. And on this episode, we are so, so, so excited to announce we have documentary filmmaker, host and owner of MUFON TV, and... Director of Media Relations for MUFON themselves. Thank you. His name is Ron James. Uh, and he is a bucket of fun. Yeah. Yes, yeah. he is. That was great. Yeah, and uh, teaser for listeners who are about to listen to this, uh, he told us some things he wasn't supposed to about an upcoming documentary, and that's really cool. Does, <gasps> does that make us important? No, not no. even a little. He is important in the world of ufology. Right, we just happen to be here. We are the peanut gallery. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I, I'm okay with being here, as long as I can throw things at the people I don't like. <laughs> Just hurling rotten cabbages at Lancaster. Yes, please. Tomatoes, cabbages. I, I shouldn't advocate any form of physical violence against anyone. Yes, you should. It's wrong. D- no, it's not. Air uh, quotes. Nazis. <laughs> okay, they're not people. That's that's fair to both points. All right, anyway, <laughs> uh, before we uh, j- finish jamming the rest of my feet into my mouth, <laughs> uh, are we ready to go in? Yeah, let's do yeah. it. All right. Let's- Go! That was weird. I know. with Ron James of MUFON. How are you doing, Ron? Great. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Uh, so let's get into it. Now, uh, as we are a book club, there's a question we like to ask all our guests. So if you'll indulge us, uh, what are you currently reading and what sort of books do you gravitate towards? Oh, that's a pretty interesting question. What am I reading right now? I just finished Tom DeLong's book, um, The... Uh, Secret Machines, mm-hmm. uh, Chasing Shadows, and I thought that was pretty interesting. And um, I just interviewed Dr. Michio Kaku, so I've been trying to wade through some of his stuff uh, after the fact. Oh, very, very cool. I mean, uh, I'm unfamiliar with the uh, latter name you said there. What what sort of uh, topics does he write about? Well, Michio Kaku is one of the most famous physicists in the world. You probably would recognize his picture if you saw him. He um, He's written tons of books. He's one of the founders and creators of string theory in physics. And um, he's written The God Equation, The Future of the Mind, Hyperspace, Physics of the Future. Uh, Just if if you Google his name, it's uh, M-I-C-H-I-O-K-A-K-U. As soon as you see his picture, you go, oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, no, I as um, soon as you started describing the uh, the books he's written, I I knew exactly who you're talking about. I've seen his face on many book covers. I just Googled it. Yep, I know exactly who this is. <laughs> so I was I was just in New York and I'm working on a new film that's going to be coming out in fall in fall um, about UFO stuff. And I wanted to get a really good scientific mind and I reached out to him 
and he agreed to do the interview for the film. So we drilled deep down into the technology behind some of these crafts that we're seeing and uh, just all kinds of stuff that's happening in the field. And for him to come in and chime in on it with me uh, was just a real honor. It was my birthday, too. So I was like, I got to interview Michio Kaku on my birthday. That's really cool. That's very, very cool. And we're we're looking forward to that, uh, that documentary you just mentioned. Yeah, it's called Accidental Truth. It's going to be out um, probably in early fall from 1091 Productions, and it'll be it, it's going to be pretty mind blowing. So it'll probably be all across Amazon and Netflix and all the all the usual places. Well, I'm sure on release day, the three of us will be sitting on the couch together watching it. <laughs> yep. I mean, probably. Um, okay, so. Now, for our listeners at home, we've talked about MUFON on our show uh, because we've covered a lot of the history of ufology. We've done Jacques Vallée. We've done uh, Edward Ruppelt. We, uh, we've gone into some of those historical periods, especially around the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but And so we've read a lot about MUFON. We've talked about them on the show a bit. But in your own words, can you give our listeners at home a little catch up on what MUFON is and does and what their core mission is? Sure. So MUFON stands for the Mutual UFO Network. It came out of a few groups that formed back when Project Blue Book ended. And um, today it's the largest and oldest organized UFO organization on the planet with active investigators in a bunch of countries, uh, field investigators everywhere, thousands of members. Um, And uh, its core mission is still the study of the UFO phenomenon for the benefit of humanity. So basically, MUFON has been a relatively sane voice um, for well over 50 years now. Uh, It certainly had its ups and downs as an organization, but Mm -hmm. it is right now doing uh, as, as well as it's ever done, if not better, and really growing into its shoes because what's going to happen is this reality really sinks in to humanity is people are going to need community. They're going to need uh, sources of information that they can reasonably trust. And so MUFON stands ready to, to, to take that position. Okay. So like when you're talking though about UFOs, I guess what falls within the scope of that? Are you just talking about sightings of physical craft, landing experiencers, anything? Well, you know, that that's an interesting question. Um, Obviously anything that's in the sky that you can't tell what it is, uh, is technically a UFO. We get, we've got a hundred thousand case reports and very few of them are ones that we can't explain, but you know, it's that you mentioned the experiencer phenomenon. You can't really get too deep into this without acknowledging that that's a reality. Mm-hmm. And MUFON has been really kind of serving that community with the experiencer research team, uh, scientific reports and scientific studies about what may be happening. And, um, they really do serve that community with resources, places where people can go and find other like-minded people without being made fun of. Mm-hmm. So the experiencer phenomenon is definitely part of the UFO phenomenon. And mm-hmm. um, especially as, as we learn more and more and, and start to realize what may be get, uh, going on here, it's all connected. And so, yeah, MUFON's got a pretty robust experiencer um, corner. Very, very cool. Um, one thing we often harp upon when it comes to the UFO topic is we're blown away by, I guess, the lack of empathy for experiencers. So it's very good to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. The, this, it, the, the MUFON's experiencer research team is one place that you can go and you can talk to people about your case. You can find out about other cases um, and that you're not alone and find a little bit of community. And, um, it's, it's very, very valuable. So anybody out there that's an experiencer, if you're not a part of MUFON, you definitely should check it out. 
Very, very cool. All right. So I guess now uh, shifting gears into MUFON TV, we understand you host it, you co-own it, or are you just outright the owner of it? Um, can you go into what MUFON TV is and how it came about? Yeah, I've been in media production for a while. I started my own studios a long time ago, and then I got kind of sucked into the UFO field. And so I pretty much dedicated my personal media career to exploring life after death, uh, the UFO question, and, you know, the nature of reality. You know, maybe we're living in a matrix. Mm -hmm. When I decided that um, I was going to do something serious with the UFO thing, I wanted to align with a group that was not going to be at the end of the day in the annals of history identified as the tinfoil hat crowd. I didn't want to put out stuff that, uh, you know, jumped on every crazy theory and, and just put out a lot of disinformation and questionable stories. And MUFON seemed to be a pretty good alignment for that. So I went to them and I said, why don't we start MUFON television? We can make it a repository for, uh, you know, vetted UFO information that has some sort of reasonable providence or evidence to support it. And we'll make original shows and, and we'll put it behind a, a very inexpensive paywall and we'll build the world's largest repository of commercial free uh, UFO media presentations. And that's, that's what we've done. That's very, very cool. I, I've yet to get around to getting my subscription, but it's on my list. Uh, and probably once that happens, I'm going to lose about eight to nine months of my life, but I'm, I'm prepared for that. <laughs> there we're up to, there's over 500 pieces of content and all of it has been, you know, if you go on YouTube and you start looking around for UFO stuff, even coming from the credible places, it's, it's very scattered and it, and some stuff is just really far out. Um, most of the, a lot of the content on MUFON television comes from the symposiums. Every year, the people that participate in those, they come and they present, things that are reasonably scientifically uh, supported. And mm -hmm. so we have already filtered out a lot of the esoteric stuff that may or may not apply uh, to the general public's thirst for knowledge. So if you really want to get information that's going to be direct and credible, it's, it's really like the only place. Okay. Now, I, one thing you did mention there is you had a long history of interest in UFO and life after death and nature of reality. Um, I guess what led you to this field and this line of work? You know, it's really funny. I was, um, when I first got into video production and I had an advertising business before that, uh, and I made some instructional videos and I had so much fun doing it that I just sold the, the graphics company and, um, bought half of a, recording studio on the condition that they start doing video too. And I just never looked back, mm -hmm. but I was in Florida and I was, um, uh, I think it was, yeah, I was shooting, uh, MTV spring break and in Panama city and the girls gone wild people were there. And I remember going home from that shoot, um, thinking that I really didn't get into media for that reason. You know, I wanted to do something that mattered and I didn't really feel like being a part of the traditional media machine. I didn't want to go to work for discovery channel and, and be, you know, some mid range guy that, that didn't do anything. I decided that I was going to create my own stuff and I was going to own it, um, you know, forever. And that week I read an article by this guy named Peter Gersten in UFO magazine, um, the reality of our reality. And this was way back, so it was, you know, 20 years ago or more. Um, but he was talking about this whole idea that we could be living in some kind of simulation. And that just fascinated me. And I thought, this is the kind of stuff that I want to explore. And so 
right after that, I found out about the International Conference on Science and Consciousness. And I packed up my cameras and I went to this thing. It was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I cornered these really big, famous physicists and scientists with a hanging a green screen in a hotel conference room. <laughs> and um, I interviewed Amit Goswami and Bill Tiller and Russell Targ and Dean Radin and just, wow. the, you know, the, the heroes <laughs> of physics at the time. And um, that made it into a three video set called Bigger Questions. And that's that's where it all started. But it was mostly from just deciding, you know, after after a day of uh, filming girls in bikinis and too much beer, <laughs> yeah. uh, I was like, I, I didn't do this for this. I want to, I want to, I want to leave something important behind. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so now kind of switching into our more uh, theory questions or I guess historical questions. Uh, you were talking about how at the MUFON symposiums, you have a kind of high bar of credibility of what you'll allow there. And that relates to our next question, which is uh, in the last several years, the age old conflict of nuts and bolts versus woo has seems to have really intensified and it's fueled a lot of social media wars uh, and real outright arguments. Uh, so where do you lean on that topic? Um, is, I guess, woo within the the scope of what MUFON will look at, or are they very strictly, we are looking for physical craft? Well, it's not necessarily physical craft. As, as the field evolves, certainly MUFON evolves too. And the thing with the woo is that it tends to get a much bigger audience but at the end of the day, I don't know if it's going to stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you've got guys out there, and I'm not going to mention names, that have made a very big name for themselves with far out stories that, you know, if you walked into a bar in mid-America and told, and told that story, you, you might get laughed out of the bar or mm -hmm. worse. And so I have this, uh, this credibility test that I apply, and it's exactly that. If your position or a story that you want to convey, uh, if you could walk into any place in middle America and sit down and convey that position and people would tend to agree with you or at least not laugh at you, then th that really helps to add to the conversation. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to have a conversation with the entire planet and very, very few people are up to speed on this. So when you go in with stories that are just so far out that most people can't even grok them, then you're not really contributing to the evolution of the field in any credible way. So, you know, MUFON doesn't discriminate and we certainly don't um, have any opinion about some of this stuff on any official level. But And the other thing is, at the end of the day, we're learning that we live in a very flexible reality. So if somebody says they had an experience, no matter how far out it is, maybe they did. Mm -hmm. But does it help to advance the conversation in a credible way? And that's the bar that, that we weigh when we're deciding, you know, what kind of information we're going to put out, how we're going to form our positions and our stances on stuff, that how does it affect the conversation and where is there at least some supporting evidence? Right. That makes sense. Now, uh, we recently read uh, Knapp and Lekatsky's book, Skinwalkers of the Pentagon. Sure. Uh, and so I guess in that spirit, um, we are seeing some reputable sources kind of straying into that more high strangeness territory. Uh, and as MUFON grows, do you see them starting to, I guess, uh, broaden the scope of their investigation to include those high strangeness elements? I'm thinking like, again, all the things that happen con uh, concurrently at Skinwalker Ranch. You have UFOs, shadow people, cryptids, ghosts, what seem to be poltergeist-like activity happening. 
Yeah, well, you know, in my film that's coming out, um, I have extensive interviews with Colonel John Alexander. Now, he was with Robert Bigelow the day Bigelow bought and closed on Skinwalker Ranch. Mm -hmm. And that night, he went to Skinwalker Ranch and slept up on the Mesa all by himself. And John Alexander is one of these guys that's always been in the background um, that, that not that many people know about compared to some of the more famous people. But his theories about what's going on at Skinwalker Ranch dovetail into what we're going to have to come to grips with as we really get to the bottom or closer to it of the UFO phenomenon. And that is that all this stuff is interconnected mm -hmm. and that it has a element of just pure relationship with human consciousness that we can't even understand yet. And so as the, uh, as, as that kind of stuff is more and more generally acknowledged, obviously the work of MUFON is going to be right on the edge as far as integrating that into what we already know and what we believe in the stuff that we publish. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, I'm, I guess I'm just trying to uh, determine where do you draw that line when you're determining who to invite to these symposiums? I guess what is the bar of credibility that people need to pass? Are there any topics in this field that just straight out would discredit someone in your eyes? Well, you know, it's a fine line between censorship and um, and and holding things to a certain level. Mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, we, we had uh, a symposium about a secret space program, um, and we invited people from inside government that had worked on projects. We also invited other people that were a big part of the conversation, even if traditionally it wasn't the kind of stuff that we would usually get behind. But we thought that it was necessary to present these different sides of the story and let people make up their own minds. So in some cases, you know, if it's really relevant, if there's somebody out there, like, say you're going to do something about Mars and there's a couple guys from NASA talking about Mars and there's some other people uh, from another organization or, or field of research talking about Mars. And, and then there's people telling stories about a supposed relationship with Mars that are just completely far-fetched, but a lot of people are paying attention to what they have to say. Do you, censor them out of your event because you don't personally find a lot of credibility with their statements or do you because they're part of the general conversation bring them in and, and let people kind of make up their own minds and so we you know we faced those kind of challenges in the past and i think we did a pretty good job uh speaking of the past my my first exposure to mufon as a concept was the way it was portrayed in the fire in the sky film about travis walton's abduction um in that movie, MUFON was portrayed as a less than reputable organization. How has MUFON worked to correct the damage done by that movie and other similar ones? And how successful do you think that process has been? Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Fire in the Sky. Travis is a friend of mine. Oh. And the... Uh, the, the documentary that's out about him, um, Travis, the true story of Travis Walton, I was actually one of the producers on. Um, Very cool. The, uh, so, so we're close. In fact, he, was, he uh, spent the night at my house a few weeks ago. Huh. The, nice. What MUFON has done, people need to understand something. Any organization, especially a grassroots organization that is largely volunteer run, especially in a field as controversial as ufology, is going to have challenges. Mm -hmm. It's going to make mistakes. It's going to have things happen that it never saw coming. 
And all the, the best it can do, the best any organization can do is to learn from that and to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I'm really proud of MUFON for what they've done in that manner. They're stepping into a whole new realm of, you know, it used to be just this group of, well, if you want to become a UFO field investigator and tromp around with a flashlight, join MUFON. But that's, that, that is part of it now. But we're also reaching out to the broader public. And in doing so, the organization has to mature and, and evolve and put processes in place so that things from the past that, that happened are not going to happen again. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, MUFON's infiltrated by the government. Um, if you were the government, would you not infiltrate MUFON? <laughs> of course you would. You'd be, you'd be surveilling everything they did. There's nothing MUFON can do about that. It's only common sense. And if it, the, the, are they watching our CMSs? Are they uh, following up on our cases? Uh, yeah, of course. I'm sure they are. I would be surprised if they weren't. So the whole idea that MUFON is a less than reputable organization, that's that's pretty regrettable. And if there's ever been anything in the past that justified that, um, I can say that I'm in contact with the upper echelons of MUFON management now, and they're really, really uh, stepping up to, to do what they have to do because as they evolve, they have a more and more important role in all of this. Mm-hmm. And then they have to be in a position to embrace that and to do it in a way that, uh, you know, minimizes the, uh, the negative comments. And at the end of the day, that when you're the biggest, the oldest and the best, you're always going to have a target on your back mm-hmm. and you can't please everybody all the time. So there's always going to be people that want to say detracting things. But what we found lately is that it's, it's less and less because we're doing more and more. Right. Um, no, I, I've read accounts of MUFON from the 70s, like you were saying, when it was an age when it was largely through uh, magazines. I think you could send in an application and get back your MUFON card and just go start investigating. I guess, how is the process different now? Are there more resources available to help train investigators or anything like that? Oh, yeah. They have a very extensive uh, field training videos. Uh, there's MUFON University. You can actually go and take a field training course in Phoenix. Um, and, you know, a lot of times I, I see, you know, MUFON's investigative techniques being criticized. But, you know, they, we're doing it better than anybody else is doing it. And when you realize the fact that it is an all-volunteer force um, of people out there, nobody's getting paid to to be in MUFON. Um Sure, you're going to have these kinds of, of situations, but we're doing it as good, if not better, than anybody else. And as when you join MUFON, you can kind of decide what level you want to participate. If you just want to be in a club and talk to people about UFOs and watch cool stuff on MUFON TV, that that's perfectly fine. And it's really fun. And we're expanding that kind of general offers offerings to the public. And if you want to get involved in really deep investigative work, that's fun too. And, and that's available to everybody too. And so they're constantly evolving their database. They're constantly evolving their training and they're constantly evolving their, um, their approach to their work and how they deal with the politics and internal grievance processes and, and all of those kind of things that organizations have to go through to to get bigger and be better and MUFON's doing it 
That's very good to hear. Um, so now, on that same note, though, uh, as you said, it is a civilian volunteer organization. And one concern that we've seen raised, uh, at least in the social media space, is that any evidence that MUFON gathers or any data they gather will be largely discredited by the mainstream scientific establishment as it can't be proved that it was gathered under you know uh, strict scientific guidelines. Uh, do you think this concern has any merit and is mainstream acceptance or I guess proving the phenomenon the goal of the organization anyway well you know that that's interesting because at the end of the day we're not gathering quote-unquote scientific stuff if somebody goes out there there it's very rare that a piece of physical debris will pop up in a mufon investigation and when it does they do the best they can for for a chain of evidence and and you know we have our own labs now that's a new thing that that we just added is wow, we actually have our cool. own laboratory facility where we can do extensive testing on stuff but as far as the evidence gathering most of the stuff is eyewitness accounts sometimes photographic sometimes video the vast majority of it we are able to actually identify and have a reasonable explanation for so very rare is the case that comes into mufon that we're like okay this is an absolute unknown and the processes that we have to get there are pretty well documented and if anybody from the scientific community or whoever wants to knock mufon's approach wants to go and, and trace their their path to how they got to the conclusion they got to that's a pretty much open book to uh to to credible people that that want to understand their mufon's conclusions so we very rarely have a situation where we may make a conclusion that any credible scientific person is going to argue with if we say we don't know what it is we don't know what it is and the reason we got there is because we put a lot of effort into eliminating everything we could possibly eliminate we got a lot of stuff happening because of these spacex launches the uh, you know they launched the uh, the starlink satellites and those are you know crazy ufo reports from coming from you know across multiple states and you know, we get to the bottom of them. And, and that's a lot of what MUFON does is we get to the bottom of these things and we do it pretty well. I, I understand that we uh, back this last summer, the three of us went uh, went sky watching to see if we could spot some saucers. And a couple of times I, I, I got real excited, then realized it was a damn satellite. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, um, I guess I just kind of continue that. I mean, I, I have to ask you guys have a lab and you say it's rare, but it does happen. I guess what kind of physical artifacts has have come into the possession of MUFON that you guys have tested? Uh, that, the one that comes to mind recently was we got a what was supposedly an implant and we um, we shot some video of it. We packaged it up, and at that time, we were kind of working with uh, um, another organization. So we sent it to them, and they put it in for testing, and nothing really conclusive came of it. Um, occasionally, they will get things that are supposedly debris, uh, which almost always is identifiable as something that, that we already know what it is and how we make it. So, And then sometimes soil samples, radiological samples, things like that, that will be a part of an investigation. But the physical evidence is, is pretty rare. The, mm -hmm. the one that comes to mind um, the most is the implant. We published the video of it and we put it into a chain of evidence. So it went to a couple other labs and there was stuff with the, uh, the television channel and it was going to be put into that. And so 
they're kind of sitting on that at the moment. But we've published our results of what we uh, what we found from it. And I'm assuming they were anomalous in nature. Well, it was it, it was a magnetic, obviously some kind of a device. It, it showed that it was um, moving around and responding to uh, stimulus. And hmm. yeah, it was pretty weird. Wow. But, but that, that case has been publicized. We put it on our YouTube channel and all that stuff. I'm going to have to go hunt that down somehow. Yeah. That, that escaped my notice. Yeah, I'll try to find a link to it. You know, that's the one thing is, it, you know, just to sum up your last question. If MUFON was out there every time we got reports, and, and so far we've, we, you know, we have 120,000 or so uh, case files. If MUFON was out every time we got one going, oh, look, UFO aliens are real, then, then that would invite that kind of criticism. But MUFON doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. we, we have, we're very credible on how we resolve our cases and, and we're very transparent about it. Uh, very, very cool. Thank you for that answer. Um, now, shifting our gears towards uh, disclosure talk, and I'm sure everyone's talking about these days in this community, uh, we're going to pass you back over to Jay real quick. Hi again, Ron. Hey, Jay. <laughs> so in recent years, the definition of disclosure has gotten blurry at best. Um, <laughs> but say we have this this mythical final disclosure that some of us are still chasing, that basically the government uh, steps out on the White House steps and just goes, yep, aliens. Uh, <laughs> I, in your opinion, how do they even do that? Like from a from a mass media perspective, how do you properly approach breaking news that large to a population this big? Well, you know, I don't want to uh, I don't want to make my friend Steve Bassett mad. Him and I have worked together for years and years. I produced the citizen hearing on disclosure for with him um, and his ex conferences. And I helped him set up his studios in Washington, D.C. And Steve refers to disclosure with a big D um, as a head of state acknowledges the existence of an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. Interesting. And he thinks that that is, uh, you know, that's pending any time. And what you bring up is that it's probably not going to be that easy to actually do that. Um, I don't discount that it could happen, but I think what we're seeing now, I have a, you know, I interviewed Lou Elizondo and some other people, and I have a video of him saying, you know, disclosures already happened. It's not an event. It's a process. Anybody that really wants the information about what's going on with ET, or I like to say non-human intelligence or unknown in mm -hmm. um, advanced mm -hmm. intelligence, because we can't really say yet for sure. Some people know the answer, but I think it's uh, the answer is going to be more all of the above. Are they different types of life forms? Are they from different places? Are they interdimensional? Are they uh, yeah, forms of life we don't even understand could possibly exist? The answer is going to be all of those things. And it's going to be very interesting as it unfolds. We have a world population that is not as tuned into this topic as, uh, you know, your listeners and, and maybe 40,000 people in the world are the core group of what we would call the UFO community. People that really care about the topic and are somewhat up to speed. That's not that many people. So how do you do, how do you put together a program for the rest of the world to bring them along? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing going on right now. We're all very impatient. We all wish it would happen faster. We all know that we're still being lied to. 
And, and you know, the, the interesting thing is, is that this, this new story has rolled out it, beginning of 2017 with um, Lou Alzando going public on CNN and talking about we might not be alone. This is a new story. This is not the old story, and it's not the true story. This is a new story that's being rolled out for a new generation. Uh, the government didn't really study UFOs after Project Blue Book. Uh, we, we don't know anything about it. We didn't care about it. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, Robert Bigelow got Harry Reid to invest in ATIP. And now all of a sudden we're interested in it, in it again. And, and that whole narrative is, I mean, it's, it's just not true. Mm-hmm. But that's the story we're being fed. Right. And so the same people that have been guarding the secret for a very long time, I personally, and I, and I stress that because I can't say that this is MUFON's position, but my personal position is that the same people that have been controlling this information for a hundred years are the same people that are controlling this limited rollout of information. And it's being done for a, a, a very specific reason um, that we're not a hundred percent privy to. You know, it's like, why this and why now? Um, I've got my suspicions about that, but none of us know. I mean, I was actually just about to ask what the why now question. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, we care to share your suspicions on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, this is speculation and it's not any kind of official position of mm-hmm. MUFON. But, course, you know, we course. have to look at what's happening all around us. Um, commercialization of space. Uh, you know, you're no longer going to be able to keep secrets in space any, anymore. You know, we, we have a history going all the way back to 1976 where supposedly life or traces of it were found on Mars and that was all covered up and it's been, yeah, maybe there's life, maybe there's not, but I think that they've known for a long time that there's at least a history of life on Mars. They're not going to be able to cover that up when Elon Musk starts landing starships next to our Martian architecture. So we got right. the commercialization of space. We have the uh, we have the fact that we're having a lot of problems on this planet, and mm-hmm. we have to address these. And it's quite possible that you know they've been given some kind of an ultimatum from ET is that you know you guys are going to have to we have to work together to make the population aware of our presence. There's something happening in this time of some sort of pressing situation that is making it so that we have to bring humanity along. It could be some kind of alien agenda that we don't know anything about. Uh, another factor that could be contributing to it is the Webb telescope. You know, they just unfurled this thing and it's going it, to, it, we don't know what it's going to show us, but they suspect that if there's planets out there that have life, we're going to be able to photograph them. And when the, when the lights are twinkling, it, it's going to be pretty obvious. So, so I think that there's a lot of circumstances happening with advanced technology and human evolution and everything else that is kind of forcing their hands. You, you can't keep it a secret anymore because pretty soon it's going to be impossible to deny. And if you want to have any control over how that unfolds, then you better get with it and get ahead of it. And that's what we're seeing is this new narrative, new story, you know, more willingness to uh, engage the topic for whatever reason. But that's what we're seeing. And if you really look at it, I sent you this, this piece that I did called uh, Deny, Rinse, Repeat. Mm -hmm. The story that we're getting right now, I'm sorry, it's almost verbatim the story we got 70 years ago when General Samford came on and described these craft. Mm -hmm. So the piece I sent you, and I hope you share it with your listeners, it it, it points that out, that that even though we think we've been told a lot of stuff, we got this exact same verbatim story 70 years ago in 1952. So we haven't really been told anything new. 
It's funny that you say that, like that we, this is the same story, you know, being told again, because that's kind of what I've been screaming about on Twitter to everybody else, (laughs) because they're like, oh, this is, you know, all of everything that's happening is groundbreaking. I'm new and new. And I'm like, is it though? It's not. It's an almost verbatim repeat of, of, well, I point this out in the video I sent you. It's called deny, rinse, repeat. We had this guy back in 1952, an Air Force general. He gets up in front of the cameras and he says, these objects are doing things that, that are physically impossible. They are not ours. They are not adversaries. We can't rule anything out. Now, how is that any different than what we're getting today? And, and it's just like, um, okay. Now we have an everything else bucket. And isn't that nice for us? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we have an everything. But we had the everything else bucket back then because they were saying the same thing. Yeah. And they wouldn't come out and say aliens, but they couldn't rule it out. Um, and, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff about the past that this new narrative is basically whitewashing and sidestepping. If these guys are allowed to have this uh, this new story be completely believed and absorbed by society then everybody's off the hook for Roswell. Everybody's off the hook for all of this deception and, and uh, cover-ups that have happened this whole time because there's going to come a time when they can just either completely ignore that this happened, deny that it happened, or, um, or whitewash it out of history. And people are going to be okay with that because they're not going to know any better. And that's, that's the, the concern that I have the most right now is that all of this history of of cover up and denial and Lord knows what else as far as what they've done with the technology and what we really have, it's all being washed aside. And I just hope that when it's all said and done, there's enough people around with enough conviction to go back and revisit this stuff and demand answers. Cause right now um, the official narrative is positioning itself so that it's never really going to have to answer for it's uh it's past. It's almost like, it, you know, when, all, you know, the the first boom happened in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and then, you know, the, little, the littler boom in the 90s. And then again, right now, it's like every now and again, it, it just it pops back up to the surface. We get the same old stories over and over again. And then the government and everybody else just waits for it to die down and then let it disappear into the background again. Yeah, they're not going to get away with that this time. Right, and that's what I was just saying. I don't think that's going to happen this time around. Yeah, but but what's what's bad about that is that it's not going to be this big breakthrough where they finally admit all this stuff. It's going to be this new story. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know if you guys are paying attention. I'm sure you were. When, when the TTSA thing first rolled out and Lou Elizondo went on TV and Chris Mellon wrote his article in the Washington paper and all of the, this stuff was all orchestrated. Mm-hmm. People think that it just was this spontaneous, organic series of events and there's no way. And, and so the very same people immediately seized control of the narrative. They, they started copywriting everything, throwing their name on everything and, and going straight to the history channel and making the show unidentified. And, and, you know, basically was a small core group of people that seized the narrative and ran with it. And it's not really the truth. Right now, 
Uh, there's another kind of sticky topic when it comes to disclosure I wanted to get your thoughts on, kind of in light of what we've been talking about here, um, which is I've seen a growing call, which I know I, I'm very conflicted on this topic, for UFO amnesty and that we'll never get the truth until we say that we will blanket pardon any crimes that were committed to keep this secret. Um, and I guess I, I wanted to see where do you fall on that? Do you think that that is something that we are going to have to do? What do we owe the previous victims of the conspiracy, assuming there is one? Well, you know, you kind of have to look at what those crimes might be. Obviously, national security stuff that's kept a secret for legitimate national security. You can justify that all day long, even if it's not that great. Mm -hmm. um, the, where it really becomes kind of iffy is, well, how could humanity have benefited from this knowledge that has been held by a select few? Is there something out there in one of these discoveries that's free energy that could have changed the entire course of human destiny, saved us from climate change and all this other stuff, but instead it was sequestered away by a select few because they wanted to preserve the status quo of this energy-based economy and, and, and social slavery. If they, those kind of questions pop up, um, then yeah, th these are these are serious serious crimes. Mm -hmm. But if it means we're going to get the truth, maybe we should. But the thing is, is that most of the people involved in the perpetration of this are going to be gone, and and the attrition is is part of the reason for dragging this out. You know, whoever formed the uh, you know like an MJ12 type group, which must have been formed, might not have been called MJ12, but if the government encountered this um, ET reality, obviously they would have convened a, a very high level group of scientists and, um, and military to study it. And then they would have swept it under the rug exactly like they did. Um, at the end of the day, if to get to the real truth, we have to do that, then fine. But I think most of the people involved in the initial cover-up are, they're all going to be dead. And so there's going to be nobody accountable. And whoever's taken over for them, they're not going to step out of the shadows. Right. Oh, and that that makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, so just kind of continue along one of the uh, thoughts you raised there. You mentioned MJ-12. Do you think that, I mean, there is a genuine government cover-up and that they have, you know, a secret lab somewhere where they're keeping this stuff? Or do you think, as some people have contended, that it's been moved out of government hands and into private aerospace and hence the government doesn't actually really know anything anymore? Well, I mean, obviously the government knows stuff. That, what I think is that Back in the days of, of uh, when MJ-12 or a similar group would have been formed, uh, they basically got a wide um, amount of control over the topic to the point where they're accountable to nobody. And, and that's just grown since then. So they're deep within government, where a select few people in government really know the whole truth. And mostly sequestered into private industry where there's zero accountability is where, where the answer is. I don't think it's completely in private industry, but I think that large swaths of it are. And there's still a few people within government, but they're not the people we see. They're not the front-facing guys. They're not the Lou Elizondo's. They're, they're, not, the, uh, um, they're not the Chris Mellons. The, the guys that really know and sit at the top of the pyramid, we're never going to know who they are because mm -hmm. we're not supposed to. Uh, yeah, no, I, I've, I've had very similar thoughts on that matter. Um, so thank you for that answer. Uh, moving into our last couple questions here, uh, we're kind of going to start looking ahead to the future of MUFON, as it were. Uh, with the formation of Project Galileo, uh, the activation of the James Webb Telescope, the new reports that are going to be coming to Congress, what do you suspect the next few years will have in store for us? And what role do you imagine MUFON taking in that landscape? 
Well, MUFON is going to do what MUFON's always done, and that is provide community to people that care about this topic. As this reality unfolds to the point where it's undeniable and people have to absorb that, it's going to affect every single person on the planet. A lot of people are like, well, yeah, I'm sure there's aliens out there. I don't think about it much. How does it affect me? I got bills to pay. Um, but the fact of the matter is it affects you. It's going yeah. to affect how you uh, understand yourself. It's going to affect how you look inward. It's going to affect your own personal spiritual journey and how you look at everything related to your life. And 7 billion people are going to need fellowship, community, people to talk to, and a way to make sense of it all. Um, and that's where MUFON is, is absolutely perfectly positioned to serve because you're going to get a certain amount of support from your religious institutions. You're going to get a certain amount of support from the government trying to give you information. But at the end of the day, people are going to need fellowship and community around this. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's where MUFON will really shine. And that's where we're, what we're positioning ourselves to do because it, it's going to be a tough pill to swallow. Especially, you know, some of the things that I've been told, it it might not all be good news. In fact, it might be pretty hard to swallow. So at the end of the day, um, MUFON's going to be there to help people through this and to help humanity adapt and to provide a unified voice. We've we've really made giant strides in uh, in our political presence and our activism. Um, as far as trying to facilitate answers from the government, doing what we can to make sure that the people in charge know um, the truth about the fact that they're not being told the truth. You know, you got these guys in the Senate Intelligence Committee, they think they're, they're going behind closed doors and they're hearing the facts. And uh, sorry, guys, you're not. We have documented proof that presidents tried to get information and were denied. Mm-hmm. So, so MUFON's as a civilian organization, as a voice in the community, as a voice in the political system and as a, uh, as a resource for people to, to come together and figure this out. All right. Um, now, kind of on that topic, uh, I was just thinking about this. You know, obviously, post disclosure world, there would be some degree of unrest, uh, which is where communities like MUFON would step in. I, I suppose, what do you think? I mean, this is getting very speculative, but what do you think would be the the immediate ramifications of full disclosure? Well, it depends on what that discloses. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if the information comes out, well, yes, there's extraterrestrials. They don't really mess with us. You know, they're doing their thing. We're doing our thing. Um, they don't pose a threat and, you know, life goes on. Um, okay, great. Most people are going to assimilate that and go, well, yeah, I knew, I kind of knew something like that was going on. No big deal. But if the information is a little more sketchy and scary, like, yeah, there's these extraterrestrials. They maybe have some kind of a plan for us that we don't, that we're not privy to. And guess what? Whatever it is, we can't do anything about it. And we're just kind of at their mercy. That's going to be a whole different reaction. Right. That's going to freak people out. So I think the, the understanding and the acknowledgement of a advanced intelligence engaging the human race, that, that kind of settles pretty flat and people can handle that just fine. The problem comes from if there's negative ramifications that come with that, that's when it gets very unmanageable. Right. I, I, on that topic, um, I mean, obviously, you speak to a lot of people who are researchers in the in this field. You've interviewed a lot of big names. I guess what would be your in your mind your best case scenario and your worst case scenario? Um, well, best case scenario 
is that the, uh, you know, the, the ET acknowledgement happens, the hidden technology is rolled out in some kind of credible way uh, so that we can solve some of the problems we have on the planet. Um, and, you know, everything evolves and eventually humanity is welcomed into a galactic family mm-hmm. and we and we become a spacefaring race and, and, and we earned that and, and we had to earn it, I think is a lot of what's going on. It's like the prime directive from Star Trek. If there are multiple extraterrestrial species out there that we, we have been, we have earned the opportunity to evolve. And if we can make it past our own self-destructive tendencies, that's the badge of honor that gets us into the family. Mm. Um, now, the worst case scenario is, you know, this whole planet is owned by an interplanetary conglomerate that has <laughs> plans uh, that don't involve our uh, making it very far. So, and there's all kinds of wild theories out there. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, uh, shape-shifting reptiles, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of stuff. And I won't say... I, I did it that I think it's all BS, but I, I can't say that I sign off on it either. So it's, it's in the gray box and it lives happily there. But there's a, quite a possibility that we serve a purpose that we don't know what that purpose is for reasons we don't know. And we're certainly not at the top of the food chain. Um, that is going to be something we have to accept no matter what, even if the aliens or the, 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 I call it the non, non-human advanced intelligence even if they even if they mean us no harm they still could mm-hmm. they can do anything they want and that's going to be a tough pill to swallow oh. so yeah it could go either way i mean we could just be so this whole entire planet could be nothing but a genetic experiment and when it's finished you know they wipe it out just like they did the dinosaurs or just like the dinosaurs were wiped out and start over again so you know those are some of the best or worst case scenarios but no matter what we're certainly not sitting at the top of the heap mm. which I'm, I'm sure will be an uncomfortable position after many people believe we have complete domination of this planet even which um, we don't yeah we clearly don't no yeah yeah, yeah. now I, I guess one thing i, I did also want to ask um with the clarification of i guess these non-human intelligences um I've always thought that the harder pill to swallow between, you know, if we had to pick if the phenomenon was really only one thing, the harder pill to swallow would be like the John Keel ultra terrestrial thing or uh, Jacques Vallée uh, talking about how, you know, in the UFO lore lines up with the fairy folk that we might be dealing with some form of indigenous, uh, non-physical or maybe even spiritual type of entity that is interfacing with us. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess on that topic, are you firmly in the camp that we're dealing with ET here? Or do you think that the door's wide open? We could be dealing with just about anything right now. No, I think that everything that you just said probably exists and a whole lot of things that we don't know. If you you look at all of the different possibilities and you look at all of the different things that we're seeing, it really has to be more than one thing at play. It has to... John Alexander told me that... uh, that without revealing too much, it's in my film. One of the things that has baffled some of these people that are in the know that have been running these government programs after Project Blue Book that don't exist. One of the things that, that really baffles them is the amount and variety of quote unquote UFOs they will see. The, the sensors pick them up. They're picked up by all kinds of different things. And there's thousands of varieties. And, and, and this is, you know, this is coming from credible sources. And what, what the question becomes is, 
just ET from, from, you know, Zeta Reticuli, it, it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't solve the matter. It's a explanation that does not serve the scope of what we've witnessed and what we've documented. And so we're going to find out, I'm sure, that many, many, many different things that we had known nothing about now are all at play, including, you know, the very nature of our reality. Simulation theory is gaining a lot of traction, and I happen to subscribe to it, that we are living in some kind of a, of a simulation. And if you look at the laws of physics, they, they kind of bear that out. Um, so when you start thinking about that, anything's possible. Right. Uh, we, we've, we've discussed that theory uh, various points at length uh, in that. And we've also kind of theorized that maybe the aliens are akin to system admins kind of mm. loading themselves in here to deal with the uh, deal with the simulation. I, I think that, that there is probably a contingent of something that is doing exactly that. You know, it's, it's almost like these, these craft and, the, and what we're seeing here on Earth could, be, could very well be the zookeepers. Yeah. You know, that, that's their job. All right. That brings us to our last question. Um, and this is going to be an easy one. What's next for Ron James and MUFON TV? Well, I'm making my show Space Time, which is a lot of fun. Um, I sent you a sample episode of it. Uh, so, you know, I'm just trying to grow MUFON TV to the, to the point we're doing a, more, more original shows. And, and more content that you can't get anywhere else. And I'm trying to grow it to the point where it has enough subscribers that we can fund bigger and better programs. And I, my intention for MUFON TV is that it's the world's most credible and largest repository of, as of yet, commercial-free uh, media uh, products in the world. And we've, we're up to about 600 pieces of content. You won't find a commercial or an ad or anything anywhere on the channel. Um, it's all funded by the little the $6.99 a month subscription that people pay. And, and that the more subscribers we get, the more stuff we're going to do and the bigger, uh, the bigger we're going to make it. And all with that goal toward being the credible go-to source that, that people can trust. And, and so that's important. And then for me, I have a film, uh, coming out in, in fact, this has not been announced. Publicity company is probably going to get mad at me for saying it. <laughs> but I have a film coming out in fall from 1091, the same people that produced uh, the phenomenon and all Stephen Greer's movies and, and Mr. Jeremy Corbell's films. They uh, they have um, entered into a deal with me to, to for my film Accidental Truth, and basically that film is all of the guys that you see on TV. Lou Elizondo's in it, Chris Mellon's in it, Nick Pope's in it, John Alexander's in it. And a cast of pretty much everybody. And the thing that's going to make this film absolutely groundbreaking is that I've been shooting interviews with people for 12 years. And they've been oh. sitting in hard drives in my closet. And most of them have never seen the light of day. Oh, yeah. Wow. What I'm putting out in this film is when you connect the dots of what these people have said to me over the years, um, the, the, the truth is just absolutely undeniable. So that's why it's called Accidental Truth. They didn't come out and say something, but the combination of what they said when and, and what one person said and another person said, we weave together this tapestry that just comes to one absolutely inescapable conclusion from all the people that, that are, are the front-facing uh, cast at the moment. Oh, very, very cool. We are definitely looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think on that note, Ron, I think we're going to give you back the rest of your evening. Thank you so, so much for giving us your time tonight and for coming on our show. 
Would it be okay if I say one more thing? I want oh. to make sure that, that people understand. Absolutely. Talk as long as you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure that people understand that when we talk about the fact that this, uh, this rollout of information that started in 2017 is still not telling us the complete truth, I don't want to be perceived as impugning the character of the people that are trying to do this. They have mm-hmm. a very, very difficult line to walk. Mm-hmm. Guys like Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon and people that have been inside government and have been shown things that they know but they can't talk about they're, they, they're in interesting shoes. And a lot of us could say, well, look, you know, you, you are in possession of knowledge that could transform humanity. And you're not telling me you, you owe that information to, to people. And the whole other side of that is no, I'm a, I'm a patriot first and a soldier first. And I took an oath and I'm going to live to that oath. And so it's, it's, it's a really delicate line for these guys to have to walk. And so for all the people out there that, that criticize them, and I think they're still running an op, uh, and maybe they are. You know, I think that this whole this whole rollout is is a very organized thing, and so maybe they're still working. But at the end of the day, they're the ones that are giving us what we're getting. And as much as we might not like the fact that we're now sitting in a room across from people uh, having dinner who know things that we desperately want to know and are simply not going to tell us, and we have this new atmosphere where that's actually okay. You know, there's a lot of people that have that leaves a bad taste in their mouth. And I have to say, I understand, but it is what it is. And none of these people are, I know them all personally. They're not bad people. And, and I think that they really do uh, believe in what they're doing. They believe in the stance that they're taking. And they're working within a very old and very complex framework inside of government and inside of politics to move this agenda forward. And you know, kudos to them for doing it. We don't all understand why they're doing it the way they're doing it, but there's a reason that they have to do it this way. And, you know, as hard as it is to swallow, um, nobody else is doing it better. And and I think that they've been like thinking about like Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon. Uh, I think that they're doing the best they can at being transparent about how they're going about it. Because like, I've even seen tweets where of like things that Christopher Mellon says, like, yes, you know, that what I, what I'm releasing is in relation to what Lou Elizondo is saying. It's like, okay, like at least they're being upfront that they're, they're, they're talking about this ahead of time and, and, and then relaying whatever the information is. Can we be skeptical of the story and of what ultimate, what their ultimate goal is? Sure. But ultimately I don't, like you said, they don't, they've never rubbed me the, the, the way that say that they're like, kind of that they're bad people or anything like that. I've never gotten that impression. So I I think it's great that you, you know, that you reinforced that here as well, especially because you've actually, you know, met and talked to these guys. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this film accidental truth, we, we do ask this question. Don't you have a moral obligation? I'm a human being having an, or I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. And if I knew what you knew, it might change the way I take this journey. And, and I'm entitled to that. And, and shame on you for, for keeping it from me when you don't have to. But that, that's one side of the argument. And right. there's another side of the argument that we present as well. But at the end of the day, people are like, ooh, it's called accidental truth. And you've got all these guys in it and they're, they're caught up in saying things and blah, blah, blah. It sounds like a real hatchet job. And, you know, I'll tell the audience right up front, it's not. It's, it's not a hatchet job at all. Um, and I don't want people to think that when it's, you know, before it comes out, it gets its publicity. 
I, uh, I, I know these people and they're walking a tight line. Yeah. No, and I, I completely understand that, that the, um, arguments that they should just go to prison by we should just tell everything that they know and then go to prison and just take a bullet for the team that's never really sat right with me because it's always easy to tell someone else to take the bullet you know yeah and you know the thing is is it's not just you it's making a sacrifice these guys have families they Mm -hmm. have retirements um you know there's a lot of pressure to 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 toe the line and when you when you get into government you get access to this information you agree that you're going to keep it um yeah confidential and it's it's tough and i wish they could do more and um you know maybe they are i know that danny sheehan is is working with the defense intelligence agency to open up some stuff uh, we have a very interesting interview with him in the film uh, he talks very about cool. um yeah so well, i can't see what he talks about it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty explosive i believe it if it's coming from uh, mr sheehan yeah <laughs> uh, um all right well uh thank you ron uh did you have anything else you wanted to add no, I just want to make sure that, that as, I, as I talk about these people, especially by name, that, that, you know, I'm not denigrating anybody in any way. And so if they, there could be something that I said taken out of context, I just want to make sure that we're all clear. Oh, absolutely. Of what my position is. Yeah, if it helps, I didn't think that you had uh, said anything that would have like been discouraging or kind of uh, 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 like talking about them in a negative light in that way. No. Yeah, I, I really don't see them that way. When I first started to make this film, I had a pretty aggressive stance towards this and it's like oh i got you on that i got you on that and, uh, you know I, I sit down to interview so-and-so and all i can think about is how i can get them to tell me something that they they don't want mm-hmm. me to know and um and i did that i really did and it worked but um you know i'm not so much you know gotcha gotcha anymore my I've, I've learned that there's two sides of this whole thing and it's it's a very very complex topic oh yeah absolutely it's it's funny um the first thing that I learned when we started uh, diving deeper into, because I like I've always been tangentially interested in all of this, right? Um, but when we first started like diving deep into all of this, um, the first thing I learned was is, is that it was one way more complicated than <laughs> I initially thought, and that many things that I never would have dreamed were likely connected to the U- UFO phenomenon. Not only are connected, but might be a driving force behind it all. Things like consciousness and you know uh, all the other phenomena, NDEs, NDEs uh, out of body experiences, like all this crazy stuff. I never would have thought could be related to UFOs, and now I'm convinced that not only is it related that 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 there is probably a connection to it all being that like things like consciousness is a driving force behind everything. Absolutely. I've worked with Ray Hernandez, um, who put out that fantastic report with Rudy Shield, where they talk about that. And a lot of people don't really understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. When they say that near-death experiences, uh, angelic experiences, ET uh, experiences, uh, even witnessing stuff are all related phenomenon, they're not talking about the theme of the phenomenon. The purpose of a near-death experience is not the same purpose that you might have if you have an angelic encounter or an encounter with DT. Mm-hmm. The, the purpose of these are, are, are different. Mm-hmm. But what they're pointing to is that the mechanisms which make them possible within physical reality are the same mechanisms. And that's where I think all of these phenomena are, are that's what they're here to show us, mm-hmm. is that this reality that we're living in, um, we might not solve it. When we try to solve them within the 
our physical reality, they're very difficult to solve. But when we look at the fact that they're showing us that our physical reality is just an illusion, they become a lot easier to uh, stitch together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, we've talked again, we've talked about this before where, you know, on the topic of consciousness, I mean, it's very feasible to me that if your consciousness is how you're seeing reality, how you're interpreting reality, if there were ways to kind of adjust consciousness or to, to directly interface with your mind, I mean, there doesn't need to even be a physical angel in your room talking to you for you to experience an angel in your reality because you can exactly. see it, smell it, touch it. Even if it's just happening in your head, it's still very real. Yep. And a lot of the ATIP program, it's not even classified. They documented the fact that, um, you know, perception is a key player in this. Mm-hmm. The Skinwalker Ranch stuff is all, is all about that. Yep. You know, these, uh, these, these extra human intelligences that were able to manipulate our consciousness, our perceptions. They knew what we were going to do before we knew what we were going to do it. Um, you know, I've sat with John Alexander for hours and, and heard him personally tell these stories about the ranch. And his uh, theories, awesome. and it's uh, it's it's very very interesting. Not gonna lie, I am super excited for your film now. Yeah, especially after having this conversation, and 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 then like the the little the little nuggets that you've dropped for us here. <laughs> like I am, I am super pumped. I'm super pumped. But, you know, there's a couple other people that are in it that are, that are pretty exciting. I interviewed Ralph Blumenthal, the ah. guy who was Leslie Keen broke the New York Times story. So did story. we. Yep. <laughs> I, uh, I actually interviewed Danny Sheehan right before where he, Danny told me, well, I was an attorney for the New York Times and they pretty much do whatever the government tells them. So I played that video for Ralph and um, it sparked a very interesting conversation. Oh, I can't wait for that. And of course, I interviewed Michio Kaku. And next week, I'm interviewing Gary Nolan. Cool. Um, very and cool. I've got some very, very interesting questions for him. Um, yeah, he's going he's gonna to be very happy when we, uh, when we connect. It's going to be a great interview. Very cool. I, I, like I said, I'm, al- I'm already pumped, so I, can't, I cannot wait. Uh, absolutely. All right. Well, I think that runs us up on time. Um, Thank you so, so much, Ron, for giving us your time this evening. It was a genuine pleasure for us. Yes, absolutely Uh, it was. And I think that's going to be it. So uh, thank you, Ron, for coming. Awesome. 